My name is Scott Ritter. I uh, spent a number of years in the United States Marine Corps as an intelligence officer. I uh, have experience in um, arms control. I was a weapons inspector in the former Soviet Union, implementing the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. I uh, served in the Gulf War, um, hunting down Iraqi Scud missiles. And then uh, from 1991 to 1998, I was a uh, weapons inspector with the United Nations Special Commission, charged with uh, disarming Iraq. Uh, since that time, I've been um, doing you know, research and writing on a variety of subjects pertinent to um, international security, arms control, and things of that nature. Arms control is obviously your thing, Scott. And I, so I wonder what you think that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has done for that. Will it, do you think, force the West? Will it force NATO to the table to start discussing things? Or will it have the opposite effect, as it seems to be, where we're cutting off relations with Russia as if there's no tomorrow? Well, I mean, Russia made it clear, even before it invaded, that it wasn't going to tolerate the United States, NATO, Europe, acquiring intermediate range missiles capable of striking Moscow in seven minutes. That just, they said, if you deploy these systems, we will respond. And they didn't mean by attacking, they meant we will deploy our own system. And, and it's not just a theory. Yes, the United States sometime this year is supposed to deploy uh, what's called the Dark Eagle, which is a, a hypersonic uh, missile. But the United States also has two um, anti-ballistic missile systems, ostensibly, called Aegis Ashore, which is um, the Mark 41 system that originally was designed to be on uh, Aegis-capable American destroyers and cruisers. Um, it's a system that combines a phased array radar with, um, with, with a launch system that, that could either launch Tomahawk cruise missiles or... Uh, the standard um, SM-3 uh, surface-to-air missile. Uh, the, 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 the systems that were deployed in Poland and Romania, um, were, we were told only fire the standard um, SM-3 anti-ballistic missile. That's it. But the Russians said the whole time, yeah, but they could be immediately converted to fire cruise missiles. Uh, and the United States said, no, 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 there's a software thing. It's more complicated than that. Uh, and yet when we withdrew from the Intermediate, Intermediate Forces Treaty back in August 2019, in less than a month, we test fired a Tomahawk missile from an Aegis Ashore system. So we lied the whole time. Uh, and the Russians are aware of this. Um, and now we have these same systems. They are going to be able to fire what's called the SM-6 Typhoon, which is modification of the standard surface-to-air missile um, that now has a surface-to-surface -surface missile application. And so, you know, we are deploying intermediate-range surface-to-surface missiles in Europe um, that are nuclear-capable, and Russia will respond. We've gone back to the same situation that existed in the 1980s, where the world finally recognized that we were on a hair trigger alert to nuclear Armageddon, and we got rid of those missiles to begin with. Uh, and the reason why I bring this up is that Russia has made it clear that any infringement by NATO, not only on, you know, in, 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 on Russian territory, but now they've extended to Ukraine, any intervention by NATO uh, will be responded to with what they said, weapons that um, the likes of which you have never seen. 
And that's a nuclear threat. Um, this scared the hell out of NATO. It scared the hell out of the United States. So we just saw the United States uh, in the aftermath of, um, of uh, Vladimir Putin uh, putting his nuclear forces on a higher state of alert. And again, in order to uh, deter any uh, any desire by NATO to intervene in, in uh, Ukraine, uh, the United States just canceled one of its uh, ballistic missile tests out of fear of uh, sending the wrong signal. Um, so clearly, Putin has the attention of the world. And this is separate that separate from the Ukraine issue. No matter how Ukraine plays itself out, I think that um, because of the Russian actions, uh, Europe, instead of trying to up the ante and um, deploy more nuclear weapons, is going to be actively seeking how to um, disarm these weapons, reintroduce an INF-type treaty uh, mechanism. And the, and the sad thing is they were headed in that direction before Russia invaded Ukraine. One of the first things the United States did after the uh, invasion was cancel the uh, disarmament talks that were go- ongoing with Russia. Um, but these can resume, um, and I believe they will resume and I do believe that there's going to be um, sanity will prevail here because otherwise, uh, given the fact that conventionally tensions are higher than they they've ever been, um, you know, because of the Russian uh, incursion into Ukraine, um, you know, Europe cannot afford to have um, a mistake made on the border of Ukraine turn into nuclear Armageddon. So I do believe that uh, we are going to see a resumption of arms control in the near future, um, not because people like each other, but because they prefer living rather than dying. Well, that's interesting. Your take there is that this may well have the desired effect, which is to actually get um, the West to start communicating with Russia properly and maturely about arms control in Europe and about the security of Russia itself. Am I right? Yeah, I, I look, the whole purpose of Russia going into Ukraine was to create a new reality. Uh, the existing reality, uh, NATO wasn't willing to budge from. Russia said, you know, we, we need um, a, a neutral band between you and, uh, and our soil. We can't have NATO abutting the soil of Russia. Uh, you know, uh, European Union and NATO nations uh, actively sought to remove uh, the Belarusian president, uh, Victor, uh, um, Alexander um, Lukashenko, from, uh, from power after August 2020. Um, this was very disturbing to uh, to Russia because if there had been a successful color revolution in Belarus, then you know the, the, there would be the potential of Belarus being absorbed. Russia literally has no buffer. And the same thing with Ukraine. If Ukraine joined NATO, that eliminates any any buffer. You can't. You know, Russia couldn't allow this to happen. So Russia kept arguing for a new security framework, and NATO kept ignoring it. So. Russia has taken matters into its own hand. First, let's talk about Belarus. Um, Russia has, Belarus has gone, turned 180 degrees. Two years ago, the idea of Russia permanently stationing uh, Russian forces on Belarusian soil was uh, was rejected out of hand by the Belarusian um, uh, president. Uh, the concept of Russia having nuclear weapons on Belarus soil is unthinkable. Today, They've signed a treaty, and Russia will have a um, have the first guards tank army permanently deployed on uh, Belarus soil. This means that a force of thirty to forty thousand elite, offensive-minded troops are 
now bordering NATO. <laughs> and then they, uh, the, the Belarus government also agreed to um, uh, allow uh, Russia to deploy nuclear weapons on its soil. So now Russia will have four deployed nuclear weapons. Uh, this dramatically alters the geopolitical landscape um, in the in the Eastern European Baltic area. Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia are now frontline states in a nuclear conflict, and they cannot be happy about this. Russia is going, I, I believe they're seeking to achieve the same result in Ukraine. The topple of the pro-NATO Ukrainian government to eliminate the, um, the, the pro-NATO Ukrainian army and to put in place a new government that is pro-Russian that will build an army that's focused on uh, being a satellite of Russia and then um, eventually deploying Russian troops onto Ukrainian soil that threaten the southern flank of, uh, of NATO and get nuclear weapons in there as well. Now, by doing this, Russia will have created a new Cold War type frontier uh, instead of it being uh, in a line drawn between East Germany and West Germany, as was the case during the Cold War. This will be a line that goes up from the Black Sea along the Ukrainian border, uh, then through the Belarusian border, up through the Baltics. Um, this will be the new line of confrontation, and NATO will have to have a choice. Do they want to spend the hundreds of billions of dollars needed to restructure their military um, to, to deal with this and also increase the nuclear threshold by deploying their own nuclear forces forward? Or... Will they accept what Russia has asked for all along, which is in exchange for Russia moving its troops out of Ukraine and Belarus and uh, withdrawing its nuclear weapons from those two territories and, and having those nations declare you know, relative neutrality, uh, NATO will withdraw uh, the two anti-ballistic missile systems we already talked about in Poland and Romania will be dismantled and all non-national forces will be withdrawn back to their uh, pre-1997 boundaries. That means that French, German, British, American troops that are in Poland and the Baltics or in Romania or Bulgaria will will be withdrawn and go back to their original bases so that you have the equivalent of a NATO buffer zone. And now with a NATO buffer zone of Poland and, and the eastern uh, states only having their national armies and then Ukraine and Belarus only having their national armies, you have the equivalent of what we call, what, what we wanted to achieve during the conventional forces in Europe. We were supposed to withdraw our, our forces to eliminate the potential of conflict. That will have been achieved. And that's what Russia wants. Uh, right now, NATO is refusing to accept this. But I think when Russia gives them a new reality and NATO has a chance to examine the consequences that, of that reality, NATO very, may very well accept um, the solution that Russia has offered. Well, hang on, because that's not what's happening at all. The opposite, in fact. In fact, arms been pouring in from the NATO countries into Ukraine and um, and American troops, of course, coming over, as well as some British and other troops coming up closer to the front line. You go back to Afghanistan, Scott. Um, the, the US was uh, um, high-fiving each other when the Russians went into Afghanistan because basically it was a trap that had been set for them. There are some commentators who are now saying um, that this is a similar uh, problem, that what happens when Russia goes into 
Ukraine with 100,000 or so of its soldiers is that they're going to get bogged down there. They're going to get sniped at uh, with the anti-tank missiles. They're going to get their tanks blown up. It's going to be basically a slow death, a slow killing field. Uh, I wonder what you make of the tactics um, of this peculiar kind of invasion, which means that they seem to be avoiding, for the most part, the major cities and going quite slowly and trying to avoid civilian casualties. This is a new kind of war, isn't it? Well, there's no doubt that Russia went in soft. Um, you know, Russia's military advantages come from two things, mass and overwhelming firepower. Um, so if you're going to fight the Russians, uh, they're going to hit you with artillery like you've never been hit before. And then while you are um, either dead, dying, wounded, or recovering, they're going to come at you with more tanks than you've ever seen before. And you'll be overwhelmed by that. Uh, Russia opted not to do that. When, when going into Ukraine. Um, and the reason is that they don't view Ukraine as an enemy. Uh, they, they aren't happy with the Ukrainian government. They're not happy with the, the Nazi, the level of uh, you know, national socialist Nazi extremism that, uh, that's infected the government and the military. And they're not happy with a NATO uh, aligned military, but the people of Ukraine are not the enemies of Russia. So they went in soft. Uh, there was no artillery preparation. They didn't come in heavy with the tanks. Uh, they tried to ne negotiate their, their way through the built-up areas, meeting with mayors and town councils, trying to strike a deal that said, you keep the Ukrainian flag flying, you continue to govern, don't stop doing anything you're doing, but um, just don't bother us as we drive through your village to accomplish our mission. They had a lot of success, but they also had a lot of failures. And by going in soft, they gave the Ukrainian army an opportunity to, uh, to carry out ambushes of exposed units. Um, and these ambushes have been played over and over again as if it's some sort of grand Ukrainian military victory. It's not. The truth of the matter is the vast majority of the Ukrainian military was deployed east, opposite of Lugansk and Donetsk. When this conflict started, the first thing that happened is the, uh, the, the military formations in, in Lugansk and Donetsk move forward and in the military is called fixing the enemy. That is, you engage in combat um, forcing the enemy to engage back, and now you deny them the ability to maneuver. So the vast majority of the Ukrainian military was trapped in the east. Russia has come in, and they are advancing on multiple axes, carrying out a classic double envelopment of the Ukrainian army. The rate of advance of the Russians today is faster than Hitler's armies when they invaded Russia during the, the Great Blitzkrieg, you know, the fast war. The Russians are moving faster today than Hitler's army moved and with a greater level of success. So in, 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 in large scale conventional warfare, the, uh, the, the casualty ratio of the victor is usually you, you, you know, you suffer one casualty and you kill 1.2, 1.4 of the enemy and you're going to win that battle. The Russians are killing the Ukrainians at a rate of one to six. This is a battle of annihilation. Ukrainian army is not winning. They're losing. They're losing in dramatic fashion. And when this is all said and done, there won't be a Ukrainian army. So all the people that are sitting there um, sniping at the Russians literally don't know what they're talking about. You can have tactical mistakes made. When we invaded Iraq in 2003, the Marine Corps, which is one of the finest fighting forces the world has ever seen, went into Nasiriyah and got its nose bloody. They lost 35 Marines, eight armored vehicles, a couple tanks, uh, because that's what war is about. Bad things happen. 
they regrouped, they counterattacked, and they punched through. But if you had just taken the videotapes of when the Marines got their nose bloodied and played them on TV, you'd think the Iraqis were winning the war. They weren't. They didn't. And if you look at these videotapes that the Ukrainians are releasing, you'd think the Ukrainians are winning the war. They're not. Not even close. Um, they're, they're not having the success rate that, uh, that everybody claims they're having with these uh, Javelin missiles. They're much more difficult to employ and survive uh, than, than people would like to think. That's why there's so many Ukrainian dead, uh, because they can't effectively employ these things. Yes, on occasion, they've shot some uh, Russian tanks. But we're talking about large-scale warfare here. And the other thing is the Russians, having tried to talk their way through and failing, have now brought out the hammer. And they're starting to use their artillery to get that overwhelming advantage. And you're seeing more death and destruction, even among these civilians. Uh, you know, it depends on whose numbers you trust, but up, upwards of 2,000 um, Ukrainian civilians have been killed in the fighting. Um, not all of it by Russian fire, by the way. The Ukrainian army is as guilty as the Russians in employing um, indiscriminate artillery fire, especially in Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, where Russian civilians and civilians uh, from the Ukrainian side are still dying because of the fighting. But my, my point is, um, this war is not going poorly for Russia. This war is going extraordinarily well. It's highly unrealistic uh, to, to expect, uh, you know, for Russia to have taken over a nation the size of Ukraine in uh, two days, three days, four days, six days. Uh, this thing is going fast. I do believe in the near future you're going to see the Ukrainian army collapse because it cannot sustain this level of casualties for much longer. It's going to run out of fuel, run out of food, run out of ammunition, and lose maneuvering capability. So I, I, I'm not somebody who's critical of the, um, of 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 what you know. I'm I'm critical of the Russian invasion, but I'm not critical of you know how they've proceeded. And I think at the end of the day, um, Russia, if it wants, to take Ukraine. It's not going to be a problem. You say the weapons are pouring in. They're not pouring in. Russia has air supremacy. Um, you might get one or two trucks that sneak through the border. But the idea that there's going to be this massive rat line that's going to be injecting modern weapons into a Ukrainian military. First of all, the Ukrainian military doesn't exist the way it used to exist. It's fractured. It can't communicate. It can't maneuver. Um, how are they going to receive these weapons? Uh, you know, there's no base for them to safely receive them. So you might get one or two trucks through, but it's fiction. Most of the weapons that the West has promised haven't been bought yet. The ones that have been bought haven't been shipped yet. The ones that have been shipped are still waiting at the border because it's too dangerous to go across. Um, so, no, I, I think there's a lot of propaganda going on right now um, to try and create a narrative. Um, and the narrative is designed to um, give NATO confidence because there isn't unity in NATO as we speak. The American troops, you say, that were deployed to the border, these aren't permanent redeployments. We can't afford that. These are temporary deployments of troops who at some point in time are going to have to go home. They can't stay there forever unless multi-billion dollar arrangements are made with the host country. Those arrangements have not been made. The same thing with British forces. There's no permanent deployment of British forces in Poland or Latvia or Estonia or Lithuania. There's temporary Deployments. And Britain can't afford to have these troops forward deployed forever. Um, and at some point in time, NATO is going to have to make the decision. And, I, you know, you have the Germans 
saying they intend to spend $100 billion. But wait until gas triples in price. Wait until they, their economy shuts down and suddenly they don't have that money available for defense anymore. Suddenly a new security framework is going to look pretty darn good. So um, what about the propaganda war, Scott? Because that certainly seems to be being won by the West. In fact, many people, like I said, are saying, well, actually, uh, this is something that some people in the West wanted uh, Putin to do. Uh, and what with the shutting down of, of channels like Russia Today, which is in process, uh, some apparently some platforms have already removed Russia Today. Uh, this is a, a pretty surefire way of... Um, severing relations with Russia, um, which is something that, for, for, I suppose for the Hawks, this is something they've been looking for for a long time. They don't want those Russian voices on British televisions, for example. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, and you've, you've rightly called it a propaganda war. Um, let there be no doubt that the Central Intelligence Agency was, um, and, and, and MI6, were, were both heavily involved in Ukraine prior to this war. They both have extremely close relationships with um, the, the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian uh, security services. Um, and the, the CIA, especially right now, is, is running you know, a, a very effective information operation, they call it. It's a form of direct covert action uh, that, that, that's non-lethal in nature. The, the CIA has been running it in forever. I mean, they... they, they They've never stopped running it. But the whole purpose is to shape a narrative um, that that guides decision making in other nations. There's there's a feeling now that if um, Ukraine could join the European Union, that the European Union would um, be uh, willing to um, maybe be more aggressive in supporting Ukraine. That's. You know, that's the feeling. Maybe create a no-fly zone or maybe create a, uh, a humanitarian buffer along the border. Um, and, but this can't happen unless unless Zelensky's uh, Ukraine, the version that he heads, is accepted into the European Union. The European Union is not going to allow a defeated nation that's getting its butt kicked on the battlefield uh, to come in. They're opening sympathy. The CIA has been very effective in creating the uh, the image of a heroic Zelensky. I mean, they just had a photo shoot, CIA-run photo shoot, uh, where they call the guy uh, the new Churchill, you know, uh, or the King Leonidas, the leader of the 300. Uh, they've shaped this guy's image to be some sort of Superman. And they, in, order, in, in order to be Superman, you got to have super warriors. So they've cultivated the notion of the, um, of the brave Ukrainian resistance fighter. And I'm not saying there aren't brave Ukrainian resistance fighters. There are. There's a lot of courage on the side of Ukraine. Um, these are these are these are people who have been put in a very difficult situation. I have sympathy for them all, except the Azov Battalion Nazis, who I believe should die like dogs. But uh, everybody else, I feel for them. I'm not I'm not I'm not at all happy about what's happening. But the reality is, a defeated Ukrainian nation, led by a defeated president, is not sympathetic. The CIA has been very effective in creating this new Zelensky. Um, a man who can now appear on a video conference uh, to the European Parliament um, and speak uh, in, in crafted words that get an interpreter to cry live on TV. Therefore, therefore, magnifying the moment. I mean, this is all made for TV nonsense, carefully scripted by the CIA. 
you know, the, the, the sentence that uh, Zelensky was supposed to have said, um, I don't want to ride. I, I, I need more ammunition. You know, it became, you know, he's, he's, he's like his famous sentence now making T-shirts about it. He never said it. We only know about it because an unnamed U.S. intelligence official claims he said it. People need to understand what's going on here. And then this entire CIA crafted narrative is being echoed in the mainstream media. And they all use the exact same terminology, the exact same phrases, the exact same way of describing things. And then the Ukrainian government starts releasing things. I mean, to give you a you know, clear cut example, the heroic 13. I mean, you know, if you're going to have a guy named King Leonidas, you've got to have 13 brave uh, fighters on Spider Island who tell a, a Russian warship to go screw itself before dying val- valiantly. Never happened. Never happened. 82 Russian Marines and sailors uh, surrendered peacefully and were taken prisoner. That's the truth. But that's not the fiction that was put out by the CIA and the Ukrainian government. The ghost of Kiev, you know, some mythical MiG-29 pilot going around becoming an ace in one day. Never happened. Most of the stuff you've heard about on TV, about the glory of the Ukrainian military, never happened. They're doctored videos. Uh, they're old videos from the early Donetsk thing repurposed for modern times. Um, but it's just manufactured. This is what the CIA and, frankly speaking, MI6 does. Information operations. Finally, Scott, <clears throat> well, the $64,000 question sounds to me like you think that they're going to achieve their objectives uh, in Ukraine. But how long? How long is it going to take? Well, the Ukrainian military is under a tremendous amount of stress right now. And I can't see the Ukrainian military lasting more than a couple more days a week uh, before they crack. Kiev might be a different nut. I mean, if, uh, you know, it's a city of three million, um, it's hard, hard to take a city like that unless you want to level the city. And I don't think the Russians want to level the city. I think the Russians are hoping that Zelensky flees um, and that uh, the, the government uh, collapses and that they're able to install their own puppet government. There's rumors that uh, they're bringing back um, Victor, um, um, uh, uh, the, the guy who was overthrown in 2014, whose name eludes me right now. Uh, but, yeah, who knows? But, you know, they'll install a puppet government. The, the, the biggest thing isn't the, the victory they're going to achieve around Kiev or the East. I think that's guaranteed in relatively short order. The more, the more difficult nut to crack is going to be Western Ukraine. And on that one, um, I don't know how you denazify Ukraine unless you go after the den of the devil, which is Lvov. Uh, that's where... The, the 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 followers of Stepan Bandera are um, that's you know that's where the Nazis are that's where the monuments have been raised um, but that's a you know that's that would be a whole different level of fighting and I I don't know if the Russians will have the appetite to uh, to do that but you know one thing I've learned about Putin over the years is he doesn't bluff um, he hasn't committed to taking Western Ukraine but um, you know that's always a possibility but. You know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what he's going to do with Western Ukraine. The, the interesting thing about Western Ukraine is, leave it intact, it becomes a European problem. <laughs> you know, the Europeans have done a very good job of ignoring the horrific reality of this Nazi movement um, that, that is thoroughly infected Western Ukraine. Um, thoroughly infected. And, uh, you know, it, maybe it's a wise policy on the part of the Russians just to stop at Kiev um, draw a line and say, Europe, you got that. That's your problem now. Solve it. 
And then Europe has to deal with what do you do with the Nazis? What do you do with these Nazis? Because you can't ignore them. They're there. They're a reality. They dominate the West. Um, uh, so we'll see. But I think Russia is going to um, this 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 war in Ukraine, uh, minus Western Ukraine, is going to be over. Um, you know, in 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 a week or two at the most. Well, those Nazis might be used as stay behind forces as saboteurs, Scott. There's nobody better than the Russians at killing those people. Um, I, I, I you know, the thing about living next door to Ukraine, it means that you know everybody. Um, it's like me being a local cop in my hometown and you trying to tell me that you're going to be able to put together an effective stay behind force. No, you're not, because I know everybody. I know everything. I know when you haven't mowed your grass. I know when you haven't collected your mail. I'm no darn sure when you bring in some outsider uh, with guns to try and kill me. Um, so I, you know, I just I, I, I don't buy into this um, this notion of uh, the CIA backed stay behind forces. Uh, no, the Russians play hardball better than anybody. And if um, the local Ukrainians decide that they want to go that route, then they're going to learn some of the hardest lessons ever learned. And again, Western Ukrainians do not do not mix well with uh, the central Ukrainians and the eastern Ukrainians. Um, the Russians won't tolerate their presence, and the vast majority of the uh, village, town, and, and cities in eastern Ukraine are Russian are dominated by Russian speakers. So these aren't going to be insiders. These are going to be outsiders who are easily isolated, easily detected, easily eliminated. Um, I just don't have the same degree of, um, of faith that some have that uh, there's going to be this vaunted uh, resistance. Now, if Russia moved into western Ukraine, that would be different. Because now the Russians are going to definitely be the outsiders uh, operating on the home turf of people that they don't understand. But in terms of the portions that they're fighting in now, I don't think there's good there. There, there's going to be anything more than a trifling. I don't see it being a, an Afghanistan-type resistance. Some people say that the West's reaction to this, uh, if we just decide we're going to cut off relations with Russia, we're going to demonize Russia, could actually lead to a confrontation, you know, a, a, even a potentially a nuclear, a third world war or something, Scott. Do you think that's uh, that's a possibility? Once you go down this route, anything's possible. And it can't be discounted. It's a very dangerous game that's being played right now. Um, but I, I will say this, too. The, the, the idea that Putin walked into a trap is ludicrous. He made this decision on his own timetable. This is a decision that's been 15 years in the making. Uh, so no one tricked him into doing this. He did this when he wanted to do it, knowing full well what, what, what the consequences would be. Everything the West has done right now is predictable. And... Not only that, they've telegraphed it for so long that Russia's had plenty of time to study the options. The important thing right now is that Russia has not um, carried out its counterattack, its economic counterattack, which is coming. Russia has promised that they will carry out economic sanctions and asymmetrical means, uh, you know, other means. I mean, cyber. Uh, Russia is going to, you know, they're taking a look. Already the West is hurting. Uh, the price of gas is, uh, is, you know, natural gas is skyrocketing in Europe right now. Uh, oil is through the roof. Uh, gas prices are going to go up. Economies can't sustain this. Uh, you know, these are post-pandemic economies that are struggling as they are. And now they're going to be overburdened with, uh, you know, skyrocketing uh, energy costs 
Um, and this is even with the Russians continuing to deliver oil and gas. Uh, Russia's looking at the fractures, the weakness points, um, where they can exploit. And they're going to hit the West with a surgical counterattack like the West has never seen. Russia has anticipated everything the West has thrown at it. Doesn't mean that Russia, uh, that's not hurting Russia. It's hurting Russia very much. But Russia has a plan to survive. The West does not have a plan. They don't have a plan for anything. They haven't prepared for any of this. And uh, Russia's going to come in and that Russia's going to hit them. And I can guarantee you that the unity that President Biden bragged about last night will dissolve instantly. Why? Because every single one of these Western leaders are democratically elected. They're held hostage by the whims of their constituents. And in democratic societies, there's one rule that applies. James Carville, uh, a former advisor to Bill Clinton back in the 1990s, said it best. It's the economy, stupid. Well, the Russians aren't stupid, and they know that the economy is the Achilles heel of the West. And the Russians are going to hit the Western economy so hard that they won't know what hit them. And half these leaders will be out of office by this time next year because their constituents are going to rise up and vote them out. Scott, what do you think is the most relevant of your books? Well, right now, given the, um, the horrific uh, possibility of nuclear warfare, I, I think people should familiarize themselves with um, the level of nuclear addiction that exists in the United States. And I wrote a book about that called Scorpion King. And um, I, would, I, I would highly recommend that one to people. Okay, Scott Ritter, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me.